Well, hi, Tim. Howdy. <laughs> I just got up from my dinner table, so you know. I, I heard somebody hey. just rudely just said, hey, Tim, by the way. Yeah, the rudely is a good word, yeah. <laughs> Abruptly would be another good one. Tim's going to take it out of me a pound of flesh. Again. <laughs> or, or it'll be more than a pound. Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. It's a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Tim Kask and Jared Nielsen join me. They have a Kickstarter for a brand new box set, The Curse of the Weaver Queen. While the length of the interview is fairly short, it is packed full of Tim's energy and his unabashed opinions. He wasn't pulling any punches. Jared joins us to explain the Kickstarter in more detail. I do have a Patreon, for the price of $1 a month, you are not only supporting me, but you get outtakes from the show. This week's outtakes are from Tim, and they are quite hilarious, including a cautionary tale of why you shouldn't talk on a landline during an electrical storm. You better get strapped in. Tim is going to take us on a wild ride, one for which I was not prepared. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get rambling. Hello, Tim and Jared. Hi. Hello. I'm being friendly. <laughs> you are. You are, just like you're told. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've I'm got... Be nice to you, and I can chill out <laughs> pulling this at me on the last minute. So, okay. So a there's pass. a question yeah. I used to do for warm-ups uh, with people I didn't know, but, you know, I realized, Tim, you don't need a warm-up. Uh, you're already warmed up. Oh, I got videos all over the damn internet. You know, anybody that can't figure me out just hasn't watched enough videos. So I used to, there's a question I would pose to people and as a warm-up question, but I realized it was all pretty much, you know, theoretical, but I think you could answer this question. Okay. Have you seen Fight Club? I, I have not watched the entire movie. I'm aware of the premise. Okay. Uh, you know who Gary Gygax was? Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, Dave. He would have liked that. You know who David Arson was? No, no, no. Okay. So no, imagine. I, I did not watch the film. I'm just aware of the premise. Like it's no, but, Fight Club stays in Fight Club. Right. Okay. So Fight Club, and then there's Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Okay. Yeah. So imagine it's 19, we'll say 77, in a parking lot. Dave Arneson, Gary Gygax, Mono Mono, who wins? Gary would have cleaned his clock. Okay, that's what I thought. But people brought up that they think maybe Dave may just been like really clever and maybe Gary would maybe not be ready for some sort of sly thing. But you're saying- David would have had to have muscles <laughs> to inflict anything. Ouch. Okay. I never saw Dave lift a single box. I'm told he did, <laughs> but only the small ones, and I never saw it. So, you know, he was in our shipping department for a while. I think he handled the envelopes. <laughs> okay. I got nothing against. I got nothing against Dave. I'm going right. to. I'm going to DaveCon in April, so I got nothing against Dave. Um, he had something against me. Obviously. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Like he something he scraped off his shoe. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll say that for another podcast. Yeah. So we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> if 
before you have your, your, your badge revoked. <laughs> okay. So the second question, we'll say the 1980s, you know, Gary goes, to, well, Gary goes, yeah, Gary goes to Hollywood. What about, what about the 1980s Gary guy, guy Gax versus Dave Arneson? Still uh, Gary wins in fight club. Uh, Gary had had ideas, and sometimes he lost sight of them. Um, and I think his sojourn in California is a good example of that. Um, I don't know that Dave ever had any long-term goals like that. I didn't know him well enough. He didn't let himself be known well enough. Yeah. And um, Gary still would have kicked his butt. But you okay. know, if we're talking a fist fight. Yeah. It, right up until just before gary died okay well no actually questions. gary outlived dave so yeah <laughs> okay but, i mean that's kind of silly to begin with you know when game, gamers don't punch each other well no. uh and then they're usually friends punching each other on the shoulders but um yeah, they just roll for initiative yeah <laughs> or roll a die to see if they can <laughs> right. yeah. hey you're supposed to fall down i rolled 18 <laughs> uh, that's pretty crazy so rumor has it you guys have a kickstarter going on yeah that's what i heard <laughs> it's got your name on it Tim. Uh, the yeah, curse of the of the, we too. the curse yeah, of the weaver queen curse of the weaver queen something that i originally wrote and published and got <laughs> minimal distribution when i was with uh Eldritch Enterprises, pardon me, I'm sticking a pin back. Oh, it fell down anyway. Um, yeah, I originally published it with Eldritch uh, in a sh much shorter form. And um, now Jared's taken it. I sold him the rights to it. He's taken it. I wrote an expansion to it. And um, so let's go back. So so Eldritch, was that, was that your company? Were you co-owner in this company? Yeah, I was. <laughs> Um, I thought I was. <laughs> I thought I was one of four. But then Frank Menser immediately made it apparent that he was going to be first among equals. And the company headed for the shitter shortly thereafter. Oh. Is that plain spoken enough? Well, yeah, it does still leave a few questions, though. <laughs> so so how did the curse of the Weaver Queen come about then at Eldridge? Did you come to them and say, hey, I got this? They, they come no, to you I saying, was part hey. of Eldridge. It was Chris Clark, me, uh, Jim Ward, and Frank Menser. And we, we got together to publish our stuff. So like, was and, it so you collectively, like, were you writing your stuff independently? Oh, and yeah. Coming together oh, yeah. as a publisher? Is that what you were no, doing? We, no, it, um, we retained all IP rights to everything we wrote and published for Eldridge. That was in the original partner or whatever foundation agreement or whatever that we would we would retain IP uh, on everything we did, whether or not Eldridge published it, and because I think we all saw it as a way of bailing out when it if if and when it all went to hell in a handbasket. And so because of that, I'm I own everything I did for them. That makes sense. So did, was the idea formulated after the you guys came together or was this something you had in your back pocket or this idea what was uh well you mean the weaver queen story yeah i just set out to write something different um i did i wanted to write i wanted to write a story where 
the big bad evil guy is really a pitiable and uh, pathetic, as in full of pathos, character who was evil against her wishes and didn't want to be and had all these evil henchmen and, and what have you. Uh, but she really didn't want to be. And as an aside, back when I thought game masters were capable of taking an idea, a kernel of an idea I gave them and making something out of it, I threw a set of uh, spell books underneath a bed hidden in a dormitory in the temple that I, I said, okay, um, this is the formula that was done. If you can reverse it, you might reverse the, the, the evil process. And well, that wasn't enough. So I, we had to greatly expand on that. And um, so when you say greatly expand, you mean after playtesting or are you saying after publication? No, before publication, I'm still of the opinion that a good DM ought to be able to take six idea gem, six story dice, pick them out of a bag, lay them out on the table, and make an adventure out of it all by yourself. Not have somebody spell out all the monsters and stat everything out and, you know, but I was wrong. Well, Tim, you won't make any money that way if everybody could do that. Well, sure. They got to. They got to buy the story. Buy the dice. <laughs> well, that's Jared. He sells the dice. I just write the stories. <laughs> so, so you guys went through. So, so what the play testing look like? <clears throat> oh, I, uh, most of the ones I did for Eldridge were play tested right here in Cincinnati, and, and I had a group. I put together a group all oh, those many years ago. Jim Wampler was the primary member of the group. He's done a number of cartoons all relating to the things we did, including um, if you look on his uh, Facebook page, back about oh, a week maybe, you'll find some drawings from the playtest of the Curse of the Weaver Queen. Um, and uh, we, we, I tested it with, um, I had about, well, I had seven guys, but I, I was lucky if I could get five to show up at one time. Um, and uh, the then store owner, a store that's since gone out of business, was resurrected by the sons, et cetera. I think he just wanted, uh, he wanted to be able to tell people, you know, he said he was going to play in it. I think he just wanted uh, whatever luster he thought it would give his store to have me run in a game in the back room. I don't right. know. We had a good time. They had a great Chinese restaurant across the alley. So I had shrimp fried rice every night that we play tested. So I was good. So, so then you also had apparently other GMs running this as well? Nope, not before I published right. it. <clears throat> okay. No, I, and, and this might be hubris, but I don't think I need to do that. I think I know a good story idea when I see it. You give me six, eight uh, shots at playtest, and then I'll work the bugs out, and I'll give you a playable product. I think 40 years in this business, oh, God, it's longer than that now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think 40 years of doing this, I have a pretty good idea of what my capabilities are. Um, the, the thing that most disturbs me in the last 15 is the fact that everything has to be dumbed down for 4E players and 5E players because they can't handle complexity. They have to have a chart or a table for everything. They can't think. They got to see what the dice thought. Oh, I'm glad that you're not releasing this for 5E. It is. Oh, okay. It is. I don't write for 5e. I write games frozen in time between original and first edition. 
Jared's company and his translators, we're going to have it in a bunch of different playable formats. Right. And that's going to make this product unique. So we have a mobile app that we call Any System, and it's free for any publisher to use. Uh, but effectively, you put a QR code in the inside front cover of The Curse of the Weaver Queen. And when you buy the book, you can scan the QR code and tell it which game system you like. And if you tell it 5e, it'll give you the 5e rules. And if you tell it OSR, it'll give you the OSR rules. So I need to, I need to process because I thought looking at the Kickstarter was that there was individual OS, like the, the, the module was one thing. And then all the creatures were actually a separate product. No, it's all in one product. It's, it's, no, it's the just book. a stat block. That's mm -hmm. the most important thing in any conversion is the stat block. Right. At Eldridge, we tried to make a generic. Again, we, we assumed too much. We made a totally generic uh, system of statting out monsters and, and NPCs and whatever, because Frank didn't want to do, he didn't want to have anything to do with the OGL. And not enough people could figure it out. So that that partially that partially uh, hurt us. Um, again, um, we were just we misassessed the market based on what it was like in uh, the mid seventies up to the mid eighties or even the late eighties. It's nowhere near that like like that anymore. So that was our bad. Well, I wasn't. We think I, we I saw said, that problem. Well, we I didn't have a problem with the OGL. Because yeah. the OGL never messed with my monster. Right. My monster, the Boulet, was never on any of the prohibited lists. So I didn't have a problem with the OGL. I own the Boulet. That's my monster. Uh, even though I wrote it when I was at TSR, we never had any kind of agreement that what we did at work belonged to the company. Ah. Never signed that paper ever, and I think that's why some of the things got left out of the CD collection of Dragon magazines got left out because there are people there who are going to jump on them if they use their stuff without permission. And so, so a lot of things got left out. I'm pretty sure that's why the belay got left off the prohibited list. All the prohibited lists. None of them had the boule on it, so I said. So the oh. boule was there. Were you the only person, or did you come up with a version that people liked? I invented the monster <clears throat> on a Saturday night, listening to a repeat of Saturday Night Live, <laughs> and that's how it became the Land Shark. Yeah, I was in. I got caught. This is back in the days when advertising were actual negatives that they had to send you. Okay, this is when we're relying on the mail. One of them got mangled, so I had a half a page. I was going to the printer on Monday, and I had a half a page with nothing in it. And we were going to start uh, Creature Features the next month with the Remorhas, which is what we ran the second month. So I went home and had to come up with a half a page. So I, I got a hold of Sutherland, and I said, I need a piece of art, you know, so big. And, and I, okay, and he whacked it out for me on the weekend. I was listening to Saturday Night Live land shark boom one thing led to another because i'm standing there looking at the boulet model the little plastic one because i went to gary and i said um of all the monsters that are in that bag of you know the rust monster all that stuff yeah. 
what one hasn't been statted out or used? And he handed me the belay and he pointed to one other one. And he said, this, this is run through the halls twice, knocking people down and they called it the bullet. They don't know what it is. I said, <laughs> fine, thank you. I took it home and I wrote the belay. Uh, oh, I wrote right, it right. with several characteristics that were fighting trends in the game that I didn't like. Like everybody in the brother had a dwarven pony because somebody thought dwarven ponies must be able to see underground because that's where the dwarves use them to mine. Makes sense to me. So everybody, everybody in the gaming world all of a sudden had dwarven ponies. So I made a monster that liked to eat dwarven ponies. That, curt- that cut the population down <laughs> quite smartly over the next several months. <laughs> I had a lot of DMs <laughs> writing me letters saying, thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I get to eat all those ponies and they can't do anything about it. Thank you. You're a terrible person, Tim. Yeah, I am. I am. Just ask all my great-grandchildren how often. <laughs> Bad man. So, uh, uh, so that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, I guess the question I have, because, you know, all, there was those toys. Was everybody, so everybody was assigned a toy. There wasn't like, no, like di- different No, Gary had that bag of toys. He's looking at it, and he started making up monsters. Right. To my knowledge, I'm the only one who got a monster out of Gary's bag of monsters and made a monster out of it. Everything else he did, or they weren't used because they looked, just looked stupid. Right. Uh, and cause that original bag had a couple of things that I now find out or something out of Japanese horror movies. And you know, who knew, you know, <laughs> uh, and I've been accused of stealing something out of a giant to make the boule out of something out of a giant Japanese horror movie thing that I had never seen. So, you know, and it was vaguely, shaped the same but i'd never seen it and it was 12 times bigger than the one i wrote so well i mean to be fair i think all those toy monsters in that pack probably look like some sort of monster from some sort of japanese movie oh i'm sure they did i'm sure they did it's just that back then right any of those things in the states no so we had no frame of reference to go oh yeah that's out of toko way we didn't know just some weird stuff that gary bought a bag of at the dime store you know, it's really kind of amazing how such a, a whim can turn into the things so iconic. Yeah. Well, when we were making up everything out of whole cloth, a lot of it didn't stick. But some of it did. So what didn't stick that you wished it would have stuck? I don't know. I, I, I couldn't begin to go back and think about what didn't work out. We were too busy feeding the market for what did work. Yeah, it just sounds like all of a sudden things were like, a fire with gasoline you just had to keep or i mean that's a wrong metaphor but well, no, th- thanks well, for gangbusters well I, I i refer to it as when the rocket launched or when the rocket took off um the dallas egbert thing uh lost in the steam tunnels was an enormous publicity buzz for weeks across the country and we 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 sold games like you would not we could literally could not pack them fast enough our back orders just kept piling up until we ran out of stock and had both of our printers doing a double run in record time to keep up with it. Wow. Yeah, it's just crazy, those kinds of numbers. Yeah, we we had we had Gary and I always operated on the 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 premise that the rising tide lifts all boats. All of a sudden we were dealing with the tide in the Firth of Forth. You know that one that goes up and down 42 feet at a yeah. time? That, that's the tide that started lifting all the boats. 
It was oh just crazy. But, you know, Gary and I sat there and just chuckled and rubbed our hands together and going, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, we weren't selling stuff to all those people. No. We didn't care if they weren't buying our stuff. If they were buying other games, that was the whole point of Dragon Magazine, was to expose the gaming public to other good games. I never once published a negative review, ever. There's too many good things to tell people about. Right. And, and who am I to tell them, oh, this sucks? Who am I? You know, they don't know who I was. Yeah, right. I just came out of college, went to work for TSR, and now I'm an expert. I didn't feel I was. So yeah, good. Yeah, good point. Uh, so the so we were. Uh, this is actually quite fitting for the uh, for the uh, for the podcast. It's called RPG Rambling. So rambling is a. Uh, <laughs> That's what I do best. <laughs> <laughs> I have a doctorate in ramble. <laughs> Dr. Ramble, please. Uh, I have a minor in babble. <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool. So, so you've worked on a number of products, but then, so I guess the question is, Jared, it's like, where, where in the lines did you say, you know, you're going to want to resurrect an, an older work? I mean, this is something that's, you know, kind of in a, probably in a strange position of time. It's not, you know, obviously a work of, uh, which is like, or TSR. But later, so what? What? What started this? Well, if you oh. look at it, the, I'll just interrupt you a moment. Go ahead. We were the reincarnation of TSR at that time. All four of us have been former TSR employees. Chris Clark had worked with Gary much more closely over a much longer period than I did. Jim Ward knew Gary much longer than I did, and he stayed with the company a long time after I walked out. So. We were kind. Of, we kind of felt that we were the standard bearers for the old TSR. Okay. Well, that was Eldritch Entertainment, and that's uh, Enterprises. Eldritch Enterprises. <laughs> there you go. Eldritch, the Eldritch Entertainment was another we, company. We, can't we talk took about. that name so that we could abbreviate it ENT. Period. So, and then we used a tree as our logo. Eldritch. Ah. Yeah. Well, that um, what. You know, I've been gaming since I was nine years old as a as a game master because I had the vocabulary. I could understand the the dungeon master's guide. And uh, in '99, I uh, decided I was going to take my family up to Vernon Hills, Illinois, and I took a job up there. Uh, but the only reason I actually did it was because I knew Gary lived up there, and this was after TSR and this is after Dangerous Journeys had kind of uh, gone into legal dispute and Gary was just kind of at home sulking. And so I, it's a little creepy, but I left a napkin on his porch and I said, Hey, I'll make a website for you for free. If you are interested, call me. And so uh, sure enough, he called me and uh, I ended up being able to spend about a year and a half with his family. So, Gail, so he, tr he trusted a person leaving a number on a napkin. napkin. Yeah. I didn't even have the, the wherewithal to put it on an official memo. Yeah, right? he hired he hired a guy over on a telephone call. Like oh, me. Well, anyway, I got to spend uh, you know, some afternoons sitting on his porch playing games and he invited me over for uh 4th of July fireworks and Gail threw a, a birthday party for my son and and wow. you know, yeah, we got to we got to have an experience there, and that's when uh, little Alex was super short, and I got to meet Luke just barely because he was heading off, and and I didn't get to know Ernie very well, but 
But you know, it was a, it was a neat part of my life where, um, you know, I got to, to, to get to know him and I helped him launch guygax.com. So, um, you know, as short lived as it was, but, you know, I was really, uh, that was a formative part of my life. And so as I got older, um, I, made decent money in the in my career and I decided it was time to give back and so I have uh, in fits and starts have started uh, working with legacy veterans who you know uh, all this TikTok and WhatsApp and all this other stuff can confuse everybody and they just need a little bit of techie help to get organized so I've partnered with um Tim and he wrote the curse of the weaver queen. And then we, 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 uh, took that great start and we've added, uh, a couple of more writers onto the project, including myself. Um, we've hired top-notch illustrators who are redoing all the artwork. Um, and we're putting a mobile app together. That's, uh, has a hex crawl feature that has, uh, Tim's, uh, content in there. Uh, we have a silicone mold making facility where we're creating adventure tiles. Um, and we're having custom dice, 3D designed and, and printed. Um, the, the new die that we're coming out with, we call, we're, we're, we're going to come up with a better name, but, but it's uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Cascahedron. So, um, oh, nice. <laughs> no, we're, we're not going to call that. But it's a, it's a really cool um, 16 face die that has spider legs crawling down both sides, meeting in the middle, that's been 3D modeled and we're gonna have that produced. And, um, uh, and we're also doing a whole seven die set. So anyway, just wrapping a whole bunch of merchandise around one product, um, including STL files for the Spider Queen. So we have the Spider Queen being sculpted right now in 3D. Um, and all of those things are going to come out as stretch goals on the Kickstarter before it finishes funding. So we're hoping that gives it a little kick in the pants and gets people interested in it. And, um, you know, and but the whole point of this is to raise money uh, for old guard games. And Tim is a founding member. So any money we raise, obviously, we've paid Tim for his time and his work uh, uh, as a company policy. We prepay everybody 100 percent because we do not like owing people money. So um, all of our artists get prepaid in advance. All of our writers- yeah, puts the guilt out of the artists, the authors. Yeah, exactly. It's wonderful. It's guilt yeah. transference. But but we, um, but anyway, we uh, with the funds raised, we're going to make sure Tim benefits and anyone else in our Old Guard Games group also benefits. And so Jim Ward has done some pieces for us. Uh, we have a hundred pieces written by Merle Rasmussen, who created wow. Top Secret. Um, and uh, we have others who've asked us not to disclose their names yet. So we're going to keep a lid on that one. But we're just real excited about finding people that were there from the very beginning. Another project we, we found was something called the Manual of Arania that we'll be doing next. So that's next in our list. After Excellent. Murphy. So you so you did the the uh, curse of the weaver queen. What other do you do any other ones for um, Eldritch Enterprises? Yeah, I did. Uh, uh, let's see, um, I, the Island of Arredondo, or yeah, I think that was the title. I did that, that and uh, that that I think was the first one I did, and that was a most uh, it was a, as much outdoors as in. 
and then uh, we did uh, Weaver Queen. I wrote one sixth of the sci-fi dark series. There were three books in that, and Chris and Jim wrote the first two, and I collaborated with Chris on the on the third book. So uh, that was the only science fiction I've ever written, and um, apparently, uh, I didn't know enough about the tropes and the uh, done to death parts of sci-fi because I wrote an adventure in an entirely different fashion that it, it blew Chris Clark's mind. And any anytime I can impress Chris, Chris Clark, I'm impressed with myself because <laughs> he's not he's a he's a very very good game writer, knowledgeable. Um, ben, you know, he knows the industry inside and out. He writes for everybody and their brother. Um, and, um, he said, where'd you get this idea? I said, I don't know. Seemed like a neat thing to try. And they all went crazy about it. Of course, that third book didn't get a full publication because the company went tits up <laughs> about six weeks before it was due to come out. I have a handful of copies that are pre-public, they're stamped on the cover pre or printed on the cover, pre-publication copy. Yeah. And those are the only ones that were ever made. And I might have, I don't know, six of those left in the garage. Well, you've got a credit for Heroes and Magic. Okay. Who did that? That's Jim Ward, Frank Menser, Chris Clark, and Tim Cass. That looks like an anthology you did. Oh, oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I wrote a short story. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to. <laughs> I don't consider myself a fiction writer in that sense. Yeah. And um, they announced to the world that the four of us were going to do this. And so now I'm on the hook. And I was the last one to turn mine in. And I'm still hard, find it hard to believe that I get as many comments on that short story as anything I've ever done. Um, because uh, so many people said that, oh, that was the best story in the book. Well, I don't know, you know, who's kissing up and who isn't. But when enough people say those kinds of things, I go, oh, okay, I did all right, you know, but do I want to write another story? I don't know. I have to write a 450-word story for Jim Ward for some thick collaborative thing he's doing. Oh, my goodness. That, that sounds funny. to be dragons in fear. Or horror. But, you know, what's interesting, because, you know, you can get different, um, you know, I've kind of wondered what RPG writing, like for supplements, what sort of genre it's most aligned with. Because it doesn't really, it's not really fiction. Well, it's, some, swords and it's swords and sorcery, which is a form, a very distinctive form of fiction mainly because there's wizards and swords in it right but the format's still like it's kind of some ways like a manual it's some ways like an educational product i mean it's interesting oh, you're you talking about a, a printed module itself yeah like what, what yeah what i call a module the rest of the world calls adventures um i like to look at it as a uh, uh reader-friendly tech manual yeah hi here's something you could put together work it up a little bit and an amaze and, and, and all your friends at the table. It's a map. That's all yeah. really it. The map. And it and it does seem like different, you know, it seems like both the the manuals and supplemental materials, it seems like there's been a lot of 
uh, variations throughout the years. I've never was a, a um, I was never a, uh, um, uh, Fritz, what's, what's the vampire of the masquerade, all that uh, world of darkness person. Oh, no, no. But they, I, but, but they did. That was a short lived one, wasn't it? Well, not really. It's still going. Oh, oh well, I have a different perspective. Oh, yeah. I worked at the Gen Con auction <laughs> for over 10 years. And we knew when the genre died, because we got, <coughs> pardon me, 30% of everything we were selling that year was that genre. Uh-huh. Everybody was dumping. I know, <laughs> we knew exactly when the vampire thing died. Yeah, it, it's definitely probably not as big as it was in the 90s, I think was our heyday. But, but I mean, the point is, is they, there was a lot of fiction in their books. Uh, they, yeah. they published like you stories. Had, you had to. If you're gonna if you're gonna create a setting, nowadays, you cannot rely on a DM who has enough common knowledge, common reading history, common reading background, like Appendix N. All right, you can't rely on them having that. So therefore, there's a whole level of understanding is gone. Now there's a lot more hand holding. And so we write them differently. Um, yeah, my God, yeah. go back and look at the G series. The first ones we did, that was a bare outlines of a convention module. We sold those things like hotcakes because nobody knew any better. Nobody had done a better one yet. Now, I'm not interested in doing an 84-page single adventure full of story. Right. That's, that doesn't interest me. The challenge is the the risk for the reward that's where i'm interested now i'll create enough of a backstory to give you a reason to be here uh, facing this unknown adventure but other than that i don't care well do you think I, with like the buyers plug them into their worlds right but i think if you kind of go to like um the um the second edition with the um is it forbidden land not forbidden lands <laughs> Rotten Realms. Uh, I think Rotten there was Realm? a, there, yeah, there was definitely, I think, a ch probably a, a start of a change during that period. Well, that was a sea change, just putting on a whole world like that. Yeah. So that's what I mean. It's kind of, I think, in a <laughs> we sense. We all created our own worlds up to that point. And to say, right. okay, here's a blueprint for a whole world for all you people that can't do it on your own. And I don't necessarily mean that nasty. But for those people that don't have our skill set here, I think it went way too far. That's just my personal opinion. So I think when I played uh, the modules back in the in high school, uh, we played them without any. We never built a world around them. We just played them, right. and we didn't really worry about tying them together with any sort of logic. We just this is what we're playing. This is what we're playing next. Well, that was the whole back. You know, originally back in the day. Modules were just supposed to be able to be plugged in like a USB port, boom, plugged into the USB port of your world. And now here's another part of the continent that you hadn't bothered to flesh out yet. Here, we'll, we'll help you do it. And that's a lot of, you know, the G series were run as a tournament module, but you could run them, you know, the giants against the giants. You could run them. Uh, as a regular thing, of course, it took much longer because you had enough time to actually play it. But uh, 
there was very little fleshing there. You know, such and such, a, you chase the, the first giant, you chase here, and then everything comes on after that with very little fleshing out. Oh, well, you did this. Now this guy's pissed. You got to go see what his problem is. And that was G2. And then, right. you know, God help you if you made it to G3, uh, that, you know, that was, hey, you know, that was the fire, the climax of the whole series. But you didn't need all that other stuff. You were out fighting giants in the hills. You didn't need to know that the hills were 80 miles south of the city of Bangor <laughs> that was full of uh, prostitutes and thieves. You didn't need to know that. You were just here to play this adventure. Now, some would say a discerning public, not the term I would use, but I promised Jared I wouldn't use it in one of these interviews. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, we we yeah, we'll just stop there and say <laughs> I know I have a big, huge project that I wrote up years ago, and it is the ultimate sandbox. I would I would guesstimate that if this were all put together, because it's in pieces of the, that I ran at different cons. If I put all this together, there's probably thirty five sessions. 40 minimum and that's if you don't have to run away to heal back up because something went bad right all right it's a huge sandbox and i wrote were oh thousands of words on the backstory and everything and oddly enough i was trying to write an adventure to run at texas and i ended up writing an entire sandbox that was so big then when I got to Texas, I had to take out this little bitty piece and run that for an adventure. <laughs> hey, it worked out okay. But um, yeah, I have I have a world. But that's only because I decided that because of the quirky way I play, I need my own world to justify it. Not because I'm an egotist <laughs> monomaniacal. <laughs> right. Um, I just figure, okay, it works this way on my world. And that was the true essence of the old school gaming. This is my world. Stuff worked like it did in Greyhawk. And maybe it didn't work that way in Blackmore when Dave was running his games. Didn't matter then. Now everybody's got to be, you know. And I think with, with the original Greyhawk, I think that was a very, um, in some ways the design was very good as far as um, it had a fair amount of information but it didn't prescribe a lot. No, and that we didn't. We didn't. We, we were still relying on the DM's background, energy, intelligence, call it, you know, all three of those to be able to take this skeleton and uh, this, this, uh, this sculpting armature and put the clay on themselves. Not enough people knew how to do it. And yeah, and I, but I will also say, Tim, I think some things are just easier for some people than others, too. You know, I, I, I find I, myself. I, I admit, I can, I know that, yeah, I have some gifts or talents or whatever that, you know, make me be able to do this kind of stuff hour after hour after hour. I can get up in front of a room and on a panel and speak with confidence. And I can write a pretty good adventure but I'm only this good now because I've had 40 years to practice. 
and reading other people's stuff and editing other people's stuff. You know, now there's a big argument going on on who are the co-creators of DD. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> oh, oh, I just wretch. I just wretch because of all the people making those claims, I have a better one. And I've never made that claim. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So what? You want to hook your wagon to a dead star? That's fine. It, it, well, the thing is, it's like it, it kind of goes back with like, um, you know, we go look at George Lucas with the uh, episode four of Star Wars. You can credit him for that, but then his wife played a huge role in a lot of those rewrites. There was another guy that was like, a, I can't was a co-director, somebody that was hugely influential. There's a lot of people and you start looking at George Lucas's influences, Valerian, he copied panel after panel, you know, spaghetti. It's like, and you start looking, it's like, he did not create this in a vacuum, you no, know. None of us, none of us do. But no. uh, it's it's a whole lot closer to a vacuum what Dave and Gary did with their group in Minneapolis and their group in Lake Geneva. Yes, they didn't have anything else to draw on. They were they were creating it out of whole cloth. And you know Terry Coons, who's Rob Coons's older brother but hardly played nearly as much, nowhere near as much as Rob did. One day, it was his turn to run the game, and he came up with the beholder, and everyone shot themselves. Okay, that's how a lot of stuff got put into the game. Stuff that I did playtesting when I was still in Carbondale for Gary ended up in the game. I can't go back and this, this, this. Right. This. But I guess the, the question stuff I is, did on the supplements, you know, supplements I wrote anywhere from thirty to fifty percent of some of the supplements that I edited. I don't, you know, I I, that, I think that's what a game editor does. He bridges the gaps in the rules. He looks for the incongruities, and he makes sure that the language is understandable. And okay, yeah, I had to make some stuff up. The only thing I'll take credit for, and then people ask me why. Is psionics. I made that up out of whole cloth. <laughs> and I still say <laughs> it was intended to be less than 1% of the total population might have it. Everybody had to have it. Well, and less than 1% of the people that had to have it could understand how to use it. But I came up with that because I told Gary it was unfair to have brain moles and mind flares that have no defense against what they can do to you. And he said, okay, come up with some. And I did. And I wrote it up and I took it in and we hashed it out. And I went back and I rewrote some of it and I brought it in. And he says, yeah, put it in. <laughs> yeah, we, we did that. What's, I think what's interesting about it, I think if I recall correctly, because you can correct me, because obviously you wrote it. Sometimes it was actually a bad thing to have any psionic ability because you were also open if you didn't have sufficient defenses, worse than if you just had no psionics at all. It's like every monster I have created, every situation that I have written, that system in particular had a bat, what they call a back door now. A weak, the boule has a weakness up behind his. You know, he has no armor up, up there in the middle of his back when his fin raises up. Um, some of the other stuff had outs. There were, there were workarounds or, you know, whatever. Everything, there was always a way 
we never, even the temple of elemental evil can be successfully um, explored and gotten through. Now, I'll grant you, it's got probably a 90% mortality rate, but it can be done. If we wanted to make stuff that just is going to kill you, we'd put out stuff that not 1% made it through. Hi, let's go to the Valley of the Dragons. How high a level do you want to be? I'll let you take seven other guys to go interfere with the ancient Valley of the Dragons where they nest and roost. I mean, yeah, okay, if you got an artillery battalion. Right. <laughs> you know, several score uh, laws rockets or something. But no, I mean, that would be fruitless. It would be pointless. And people yeah. would hate you after they bought it and said, there's no chance. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting about it is, you know, on one hand, it to me, it didn't seem overpowered. And it was, the second thing is, it was, um, it added a different flavor to the game. Um, but what I do find kind of odd was the mechanics are way kind of out there compared to the rest of the mechanic. It's kind of like a bolted on. It was. It was. There's no way, unless Gary had thought of having that as a seventh stat, there's no way you could do anything with psionics except bolt it on. There wasn't. It would have had to have been an integral part, uh, integral, integral part of the original design. And then I'm sure it would have been different. I'm sure wisdom and stuff would have had more of an influence on it as it was. We had pretty high requirements, supposedly, but people obviously ignored them because all of a sudden there's dozens and dozens and dozens of psionics running around in the gaming verse. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, right. Less than 1% might have it, might have it. Well, what I find interesting, Tim, is that um, you sort of created a stumbling block because it was well-loved, but still kind of awkward in uh, the first edition. But yet every edition afterwards, I think felt the need to have it but no matter how they tried to do it, they couldn't do it any better. Well, thanks for that. I know it was awkward. I know it was, uh, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be easy. It was supposed to be something that the DM was concerned with. And it was there for the DM to make an NPC that could be hired to uh, come along and, and help a group that was going to be up against mind flares or brain moles yeah. or thought eaters or, you know, whatever. And we published a lot of things that we knew. We knew we put them out as NPCs, and we knew they'd be abused. But if you're going to let people have a good time with your product, you got to let them break it. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, but I do find it interesting with every new edition. There's always the 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 feel that has to be part of it. You you've created something that was kind of I don't want to say an afterthought, but it's not necessarily integral to the core. But yet every iteration feels the need that it has to be there. Well, but Gary created the need for it in the first place when he made mind flares, brain moles, thought eaters, <laughs> all those things. And I, I, I used to know which books those came directly out of, uh, out of Appendix N. And I told him that, and this is before I came to work for him, right? Shortly before. There might even have been Gen Con 75, which was like three months before I moved up there. Um, I told him, I said, this is not fair. You say that everything has an out. And I learned that from Gary. Everything has to have an Achilles heel. 
everything has to be able to be reversed. Though there are a couple that, okay, that principle doesn't apply here. You know, like there's a permanent death you can't be resurrected from or whatever. Um, so he created the imbalance in favor of the, uh, the DM with no retaliation or even protection on the part of the players. And we sat and we sat and yeah, I think it was a face-to-face. And we talked about it for about 20, 25 minutes. And she says, well, yeah, you got a point. Everybody, you got to be able to survive anything if, and that's the whole thing. If you have the power, if you're strong enough, that's all luck. And that's dice. Yeah. And you just keep rolling until you get it. <laughs> well, that's what I've held a lot of people. Did. Oh yeah. That's what I did. I was you like know. 15 years old. What do you think I'm going to do? 16 years old? Like, sure not. Yeah, and how many times rolling. did you roll to get an 18 double odd strength? Yeah, you know, I, I think I might have actually, with the TRS-80, I was probably able to program the ability to roll it. <laughs> yes, I've heard of those infamous <laughs> programs. And, you know, we used to laugh our, we used to laugh up our sleeves and out loud occasionally about the people doing that because, hey, they're having fun. Oh, yeah. Fine. They bought our product. Fine. Let them do with it what they want. If they want to buy our jalopy and run it into the ground on a demo derby, fine, because they'll be back to buy another one. Well, I think the genius is, it became more evident with Traveler, but I think the genius of role-playing games is the mini games. So creating a character is a game within a game. Yeah, it's the only game I know where you can die in character creation. Yeah, it's- Two uh, places. There's two places you can die. You can either just die or get hi, <laughs> right, you have spina bifida. Well, shit, I'm not gonna play that guy. You know, oh wow, thanks. I just spent 15 minutes rolling up this character to find out he's unplayable. Well, we, you, used, we used to tease you, Mark about that a lot. Yeah, but you know, I what I first heard was the reason he did that was I heard this it was incorrect. Uh well, I mean it's not incorrect, but they had friends in, in Vietnam who died and just wanted to convey this the gravity of prolonged military service. Well, okay. But that's not, but when I heard him describe it, that's not what he said. Well, yeah, that could have been done in a disclaimer at the very beginning of the book. Hi, no, yeah, he, this is about war and conflict, but let's yeah. not forget <laughs> that in real wars and real conflicts, real people die and real families are devastated. But that's not why he says he did it. That's what I had heard. What he said, he, the reason he did it was it was a, um, it's a, if you, you, you get more abilities, the longer you're in, but he wanted to create a, a risk. So it's a pressure lock. So it would be a disincentive to roll too many times because you may end up dying. So that was kind of a, a mechanism. No, that's not, that he put that's in. not a, that's, that's a valid, that's a valid idea. Yeah, once I realized he did I that, didn't see he it working that way, but that's okay. <laughs> well, the thing is, what it did was, I don't know that it made the game better, Tim, but well, I think what it did do is it did what D&D was doing, but it made the character creation process even more of a game within a game. Well, yeah, everybody get together on Thursday night and we'll all try to roll up characters for Traveler. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, there's a certain amount of joy in that. I mean, there's a game of, you know, when you create a dungeon and you you get on the the uh, treasure types and you start rolling. That's a game within a game. Oh, I don't. I Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. I have, oh, since about 1977, I have never oh. rolled for treasure. 
Well, what, what I'm saying is w when we were in high school, that, that was the thing. I used to, well, the reason I don't anymore is because I did. My very yeah. first dungeon that I took, you know, I played at Lake Geneva in 74. I bought a set of the books. I didn't get Greyhawk because I wanted the dice instead. And so we played with D6s for several months. And uh, well, let's see how I can phrase this. Um, we did a lot of dumb shit, me being the primary part of the we, because I thought you were supposed to roll for every room. Oh. <laughs> so my games, my first games were, could have been played to the tune of uh, Let's Go Killing at the Zoo. Okay, the old Simon and Garfunkel song? Yeah. Yeah. Um, every door you opened, there was, <laughs> there was something there. And there was stupid treasures. And then there was no treasure. It, I was just following the charts. Yeah. Right? Because I didn't know any more than the, any other buddy that had played a couple of times at a con and was taking it home. It took me three weeks to figure out the rules. And that's when I told Gary, they sucked. And that's how I got hired. <laughs> you win by telling somebody their baby's ugly. <laughs> I, told, I told him, I said, I, it took me three and a half weeks to read through this. And I, you know, I was in college at the time. I was carrying the little brown books around with me, reading them in between classes and stuff. And probably when I should have been doing homework. And uh, it took me three and a half weeks to do that first dungeon. And three months later or so, I got Greyhawk and, and we revamped everything. And I didn't do that. I mean, like, you know, let's go killing at the zoo stuff anymore. I started thinking out my dungeons. I started putting at least a minimal storyline behind what I was drawing. It developed into the Koala Shark campaign. Right. We ended up playing the whole time I was at Carbondale. But it didn't start out that way. But, but I will say, though, Tim, for my teenage years, that was wonderful. It's not what I want now, but I would not choose, I would not want it to be anything different than the way it is for my teenage years. As far as those, we would randomly roll up a creature, we'd fight the creature, then we'd randomly roll up everybody there with expectation of what's going to come up on the die. Uh, you know what I'm saying? As far as oh, teenagers yeah. go, that was, we could just Start randomly roll everything. Table. Everybody's yeah. watching the dice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's no good now, but it's good for a guide. But but man, I'll tell you what the those mini games were absolutely wonderful as a teenager, and I think that at, during that time period, they were they were great. One whatever role D and D that I'm proud to have had a hand in has played uh, for the good for anybody. I'm tickled to death. I I, I mean that. Um, wonderful. We, you know, anecdotally, I've had so many people come up to me at cons and tell me of the trouble they stayed out of, the confidence they gained, they gained, uh, the desire to read more in that in that field. We spurred all those things. That just gives me a warm and fuzzy glow. And that's yeah. not sarcastic. I mean that. That's what we set out to do: entertain people, show them the powers that they could have with their imagination. Yeah, and I think a lot of us, we lived in small towns, not much going on. We we're kind of nerd losers. And this provided a means of actually doing something meaningful. 
Best story I ever heard. Kid came up. I crashed the uh, the Watsi party at Gen Con one year, and uh, they they it was a very loosely worded announcement, so I I crashed it. And I had a young man come up to me and tell me how he'd been tongue tied and very introverted, and he discovered this and what it had done for him. And to make a long story short, he told me he never knew you could have that many girlfriends at once. He never knew he could sing in front of a band. And he never knew, he never dreamed he'd end up being uh, vice president of his graduating class. Huh. And he, he's, he's heaping it all on what he got out of D&D those couple of summers. Win, 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 win for the good old boys. Yeah. Nothing better to hear. Nothing better to hear than that we had a very positive influence. Sometime on another podcast, I'll tell you about the game I ran for all the guys who were ex-cons. <laughs> Why did they have a different did they have a different way of playing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything is kill it. <laughs> kill the, it. The, the con of cons. Oh, it was it oh it yeah, it was fun. I don't ever want to do it again, but it was fun. So so you uh you spent some years teaching, Tim, right? Yeah, a few. Not not a lot. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, not a lot. No, it was Oh, I thought it was a, a number of years that you spent teaching. Uh, no. Um I was um I went back to school to get my master's in education. I was uh oh, 56. Uh, or yeah, 56, 58. I, I, um, passed all the classes and I got my master's and all that. And I got my temp, uh, my temporary certificate. And, uh, I sent out, oh God, 80, 80 resumes to the, all the school districts in driving distance. And, uh, I, I ended up a system sub for a couple, three of the school systems. And I just be, you know, they call me up at six in the morning. Hey, can you work today? And uh, there were a couple of schools that I worked for one year exclusively. And there were a few private schools I worked at. And, but it was always as a fill-in as a sub. Uh, the only time I got two actually honest to God interviews, the football guy got hired. I was a soccer guy. Ah. I have years and years of coaching and refereeing experience, and I was a high school announcer for a bunch of years. But the football, the, yeah, the, the guy that could coach football because football made money. And I understood that. So why'd you go into teaching at, at 56? Or, you know, well, I, done it, I did it. I was teaching in 2000. Um, I was teaching on 9-11. Okay, I was working at the local high school. And uh, that was back when you could uh, work as a teacher at the, uh, the the principal, yeah, at the pleasure of the principal or whatever. And that's how I got hired. Uh, the principal and I, were, I'd met the principal and, and I'd said something. I said, yeah, I'll hire you next year. And I said, okay. And um, I was working on 9-11. And um, I only worked about half that year. And... Uh, then uh, it was a few years later, and I said, I, I like that. That was fun. I'm going to go back and do it some more. And so the, easy, the fastest way was to get a master's, but they, you, then you price yourself out of the market. That's what I was going to say, because normally people, I think, get hired and get their master's while they're working. Well, yeah. Um, you got you got to apply to the rich districts to get hired straight in as a master's, because the teachers unions have mandated yeah. minimum, minimum pay grade, pay scale. 
And uh, I wouldn't teach now for nothing. No way. School boards telling you what you can and cannot teach when they don't know what they're talking about. Um, there's been a recent thing on Facebook about uh, somebody had to put a had you some guy, some teacher, it was a male, had to put his semester's uh, lesson plans together by a certain date, you know, like eight days after the semester starts or whatever, for the entire semester, day by day by day. Well, in Ohio, we had to do the same thing for a year. Oh, my goodness. And if you get audited that day, you know, somebody comes in to see how you're doing and, you know, that kind of stuff goes on. And you're not on the copy uh, on the page that they pulled out of the file up in the front office. You're on the carpet at the end of the day wanting to know why you weren't following the lesson plan. Didn't matter if that particular class they audited were all bright guys and we were doing we were working ahead or doing something a little extra. Didn't matter. Stick to the plan. We got a CD every year. These are the points you must teach. Now, yeah. oh God, I'd have been fired. <laughs> you know, no high school that I know of teaches critical race theory. But I would have liked to have been able to address some of the inconsistencies and discrepancies in some of the history I was teaching. But now that would get me fired. Yeah. So I guess you just took uh, so what'd you do afterwards? Just uh, retired. Just retired. <laughs> so you know what? I retired then, a year and a half early. And then and then years later you get a call from Jared. Bring. Hello, this is Jared. I want to throw some money your way. You're like, oh, okay. Well, I think we met at a con. Yep. Was he in prison? Was he was he in the game that you ran in prison? No. 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 Okay. Now, if Jared's got a record, I'm unaware of it. You don't have to go to the game or prison if you sponsor the convention, so it's all good. No, these guys were all ex-cons. It was a game in Kansas City I ran one year when I was out there at a convention. I ran it in a friend's basement. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, dark and gloomy. and smelled like a basement. I had four lunatics across the table from me. <laughs> <laughs> well i brought pre-gens and when i run pre-gens for an unknown group i always stick a paladin in because the paladin has to keep it from going off the rails well when i had to tell literally eyeball to eyeball those is about six inches apart on the table that we were both standing and leaning up on the paladins were not allowed to pluck out captives eyes to get information <laughs> I, I didn't know if he was going to pluck one of mine out. I, it got really, really tense. Really, really tense. But I stared him down when I pointed to the mythical symbol around his neck, you know, being, being the paladin. And what would he say or she or the, whatever the case may be? And backed him down. And then we went on. But I mean, oh, yeah, they learned to play in prison. I don't tell you something right there. Good? What's good? We're all evil. Right, exactly. <laughs> We're looking for parole. We're neutral. <laughs> that was interesting. One of the more interesting groups I've run a game for. I could imagine. I'm running games online now, um, and uh, on Zoom, and I'm doing a second game in Okinawa on March the sixth. When you I say second game, game, I ran a bunch. Go ahead. Oh no, you go ahead. I ran a game for uh, six or seven guys. 
And they went and talked to all their friends in Okinawa who also play and bragged. So now the other guys want to play. Yeah, yeah, good, fine, okay. Well, that's great. Uh, yeah, I, I do the Wheel of Blame online. I started doing it online uh, when the virtual, when the pandemics made all the cons go virtual, and it works great. The Wheel of Blame? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very old school. Uh, I'm pre-gens. And um, for whatever reason, you are here to walk the wheel of blame. And in the wheel of blame, each player gives me a, a note card with two things on them. Just two things. A peanut and a marble, whatever. And I will take all those cards and I'll make an encounter out of each card as they walk around the wheel of blame, you know, like a giant space station where the gravity all stays the same while they walk the wheel of blame and they have to solve each of the uh, encounters slash puzzles that I put before them and obtain a little disc. Just happen to have one here, uh, a little disc that says uh, in Tim, we trust. I don't know if you can read that. It's probably oh, good. not really, but that. I and on the it. other side, it says, it's not my fault. You have to have one of those to get off the wheel of blame. So some people are sent there for a punishment. I give them a real hokey backstory. You're either here because somebody's mad at you or you want this on your CV that you survived the wheel of blame. And so it's the wheel of blame. And, and each one of them, you might find yourself floating in the air and the next one you might be underwater. Hmm. But uh, you'll have a breathing apparatus, or you'll have right. boots on, you know, for the floating part. So you know, it's always there. But I play. I give them pre-gens, and um, they don't have a lot of extra stuff. They they're there to survive by their wits. It's so when you, when you say pre-gens, are you are you using like D and D style rules? Is that what you're doing, or is this? Well, I mean, uh, I'm pre-generating the characters. I have eight characters pre-generated for this game. When somebody uh, puts the money in my PayPal, I send them an email with an attachment that has all the pregens, and then they decide amongst themselves who wants to be who. But are you using D and D rules for this? Oh yeah, everything I do is is frozen in amber somewhere between O D and D and first edition. You know, they're they're uh, third, fourth, fifth level uh, characters which in OD&D is pretty, pretty decent. We got to remember, we used to retire at level 10. Oh yeah. We'd retire the, the character and start a new one because the fun was in the chase. And um, so I, I, you know, the, I don't give them anything. Again, I don't give them anything they can't defeat or figure out. And the humorous stuff that goes on is, <laughs> It's well worth it for me. And some of the suggestions, like the guy had stripped naked so they could cover his body with a, a nectar out of the giant trumpet-shaped flowers that the giant butterflies were all coming to get. And I rolled the dice, and I'll be damned it worked. The butterflies picked him up and took him over the thorn, thorn wall. And then he could, let, you know, I mean, I love. And then there I are butterfly it. babies that looked a lot like him. Hmm? And then later there are a bunch of butterfly babies that looked just like him. No, 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 no. Okay. We, we don't play that long. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, but I love novel solutions, and I let the dice rule. Now, if you want to point to contemplate one night when you're staring at your navel, yeah. how much have we progressed, or not, 
from the shamans who used to throw a sheep's shoulder blade into the fire and read the cracks every time we roll those dice. Yeah. Every time. Now we can influence it a little bit. We can, you know, in our own mind, we can fudge on what we think they're going to need to, you know, whatever, or interpret the dice roll however we wish. But have we progressed all that far from the shaman clad in skins, throwing bones into the fire and reading them? No. All we're right. having a whole lot more fun because we're not worried about the saber tooth coming into the cave and eating us. But we're having, you know, we're not that much different. As no. a, and most old school DMs interpret the dice. There's a difference between reading the dice and interpreting the dice. Somebody comes up with a wild idea off the top of his head. Okay, let's see if that works. And I roll a 15. Well, yeah, what a neat idea. Now let's see how we can implement it. I, I, roll a seven? Had... No, I don't think so. You rolled a seven. Nah, I don't think that's going to work. Do you play any newer games at all? Or do you stick uh, with, with uh, the tried and true? Well, I'm not a role player by nature. Ah, uh, I'm a board gamer. Okay. I got a say, basement full of board games. I have, I have five friends that come over every other Wednesday night and we play board games or right now we're playing uh, Dawn Patrol fighting the skies, which is a board game. Oh board yeah. Game. I remember Dawn Patrol. I was never very good at it. I had my friend oh, who was real I good at board it. games. I love it. I played for several years with Mike Carr, the, the uh, writer. And when we were in Lake Geneva, Jared yeah. got tired and left. He did. You know what? Now there's nobody to restrain you. Oh, no. Past <laughs> <laughs> experience. Past experiences. No, no. I've watched too many other people self-destruct their own careers. And I was, <laughs> yes. being a dick online. Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. No, the, uh, what I was going to say is there's a lot. My wife's of probably wondering what in the hell I'm still doing down here. Oh, do I need to release you from your your? Uh... Yeah, I think I think we should wrap this one up in a couple of minutes. And if you want to do another one sometime, just get a hold of me directly. Okay, just do it through uh, through Facebook Messenger. Yeah, that'll work. Okay. I can set it up on my Zoom where you don't have to worry about it after twenty or forty minutes. Well, if it's more than one person, I have to. But if it's just me and one other person, I can go infinite. So that's that's cheap, Jeff. So uh, Tim, I'm gonna say. The I had an extraordinary time. <laughs> yeah, I like to think that when people get done with me on one of these things, they can sit there, shake their head, and go, Well, I wasn't expecting half of that. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I appreciate you. I'm, I'm glad to uh, help promote your product, but it's, man, it's been a, an absolute pleasure, Tim. Yeah, well, okay. World of Game Design, Curse of the Weaver Queen, yes. Kickstarter, my name, or Weaver Queen, you'll find it. Uh, uh, Jared, be proud. You did good. Yeah, tell him I gave him a plug right at the end. All right. <laughs> you take care, Bye. Tim. Bye. Good night.